0: Hello, and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. When Lyndon Johnson asked his motorcade to stop and walked into Washington High School on St. Claude's Avenue in New Orleans, there were no lights on. No lights on anywhere in the Ninth Ward, three days after Hurricane Betsy had devastated the poorest pocket of New Orleans. A few flashlights prepared the way for the president as he walked, A shifting mass of bodies and half-illuminated, anguished faces greeted him. They had sought shelter in the high school. Almost all of the people there were African-American. Water! Water! came the cries. I am your president, said Johnson, and I am here to help. When Donald Trump stood at the edge of a similar crowd in Puerto Rico on October 2, 2017, and distributed rolls of toilet paper like he was shooting three-pointers from downtown. He was participating in a tradition that Lyndon Johnson started that desperate evening 52 years earlier. On September 10, 1965, Johnson gave birth to a modern phenomenon at Washington High School, the president as first responder and consoler-in-chief. The role has elevated presidents and crippled some presidents, But it wasn't always a part of the American presidency. Our whistle-stop today, well, you know what it is. It's September 7, 1965. Please do try to keep up. But our pre-whistle-stop framing device is in the fall of 1955. President Dwight Eisenhower is enjoying some peace and quiet with his son David at his Gettysburg retreat. The president spent his days golfing and fishing. The front pages of American newspapers in the fall of 1955 were a collection of stories about happy vacationing President Eisenhower. Eisenhower's a happy man fishing and eating, read one headline. Mimi waves goodbye, reads a caption to a picture of the president flying off in a prop plane. He was headed from his farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to Denver, from one vacation spot to another. Boy, that Eisenhower was vacationing a lot, and the papers seemed to have no problem with it. But presidential vacations are not what our tale is about this week. What amazes your whistle-stop correspondent is that it has taken him this long to refer to himself in that way. From now on, there's going to be a lot of that, but back to our story. What amazed your whistle-stop correspondent was the headlines and stories in 1955 all packed around these light-as-marshmallow pieces about Eisenhower's vacationing. The stories that were carrying the weight on the newspaper front pages in the fall of 1955 were about hurricanes battering the United States. 1955 was a terrible year for hurricanes. It was the third most devastating year of hurricanes in modern record. In fact, the 1955 spate of hurricanes have their own Wikipedia entry. Alice, Brenda, Connie, Diane, Edith, Flora, Gladys, Hilda, Ione, Janet, Katie. A lot of hurricanes. In August, on the cover of The Baltimore Sun, they heralded the arrival of Hurricane Connie, the worst of the storms that year. But if you read the hurricane story, you can't find the president. He's not in the story. It's not because he's not working. It's that nobody would think to put him. The only place you can find Eisenhower in the paper that day, on the front page, is in the index to the stories you'll find later inside the paper. Right above the page number telling you where to turn if you want to read the women's pages you learn that there's a story inside about the fact that Eisenhower's flight back to Washington from his vacation was being delayed by the storm. The president in these papers in 1955 is not expected to spring into action. He is not pictured with furrowed brow as at a command center. He is not, on the eve of the 1956 campaign, doing anything political to take advantage of these storms. Emerging in photo opportunities, looking like the general that he was. He's not standing in front of any maps, pointing for the cameras to capture him. I could find no evidence of the president ahead of these storms and only a couple of instances where he visited storm after effects. And we'll get to that that later. And Gareth Davies, who made a study of this period and a study of presidential responses to disasters and wrote an article about this very moment for the Journal of Federalism, The article was called Pre-Modern Disaster Politics, Combating Catastrophe in the 1950s. And here's what Davies, whose accounts, a variety of different pieces that he wrote, I'll be relying on throughout. Davies wrote, "...I have found remarkably few examples of journalists or politicians seeking to exploit evidence that government was in some way complicit in a particular disaster." During Eisenhower's tenure, disasters were handled by the states, local organizations, and civil defense forces. In the 1930s, New Deal institutions did bring a federal response to the 1938 hurricane. Roosevelt sent 100,000 army troops, but that was not the norm. In the 1950s, there was, of course, the hurricanes in the 1950s that created... Uh, a, a federal response, but the key distinction was the focus was on repairing public facilities. Our story today is about how the federal government moved from repairing buildings to feeling the need to repair lives and individuals and how the presidency midwifed that change and then how that connection between presidential action and relief for individuals became a permanent part of the office of the presidency. Now, when Eisenhower was president, there had been some movement towards federal disaster relief. In 1950, which was a horrible, another horrible year for hurricanes, Congress passed the Federal Disaster Aid Act of 1950. It was the moment really when the federal government took its first organized steps to respond to natural disasters. Previously, Congress would have to pass a law to deal with a disaster. Now, there was a law that set up structures, and it allowed the president to provide federal assistance when a governor requested help. And the president did what we are familiar with today by declaring a major natural disaster. But the federal disaster assistance would supplement the efforts available at the state level. And that was the key word, supplement. The act made it clear that the federal government was not the first-line provider of emergency assistance. It would support the locals. The act required that the federal assistance be supplied only when the local governments had committed themselves a reasonable amount of the funds needed. And in fact, during the early years of the Disaster Act, presidents turned down a third of the requests for disaster aid. Now, instead of turning down a third of them, they only turned down a little over 10%. It's in the low teens, I think. During his presidency, Eisenhower, more broadly, sought to shrink the role of the federal government. So even while the hurricanes of 1950 had started the move toward a federal role, which presumably then would have kind of increased momentum for federal action in 1955, the year we're focusing on, The former commander of Allied forces was himself resisting expanding the federal government into a new area. It wasn't that he lacked compassion. He simply had a belief system that he followed. He was always on the lookout for government centrality or centralism and and paternalism. That's why Davies' study of this era and Eisenhower's responses is in the Journal of Federalism. The idea being that control was best at the local area, and if you started relying on the federal government, you would sap the American spirit and one of its core founding elements, self-reliance. Here is the way Ike viewed it from a this is a speech after he left office, but he's talking in 1961 about the disturbing tendency for people to stop giving to the Red Cross. Remember, the Red Cross was the institution that was supposed to deal with these hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes, not the federal government. And Eisenhower in 61 is complaining because people started to think that they should give to the federal government. And because there's an idea that the federal government should take care of this stuff, they're not donating to the Red Cross anymore. Here's Eisenhower. I regard this as one of the great real disasters that threatens to engulf us when we are unready as a nation, as a people, to meet personal disaster by our own cheerful giving. And I think that part of the reason is this misunderstanding that government is taking the place even of rescuing the person, the individual, and the family from his Natural disasters. Now, when he was president, Ike did tour disaster areas as president. The damage from Hurricane Diane was one particular instance, but he did so to promote local efforts and to call on people to give money, to donate, and create better civil defense capabilities in times of crisis. So, in other words, the president's role with respect to a disaster was not to come to the aid of those suffering, but to go out and cheerlead for more local efforts in preparation. For a hurricane federal disaster spending under Eisenhower was about 6% of all disaster spending. By the time you get to Nixon, it had grown to about 50%. So what changed? Television, transportation, and a philosophy about the role of government. Let's just quickly start with transportation. Eisenhower's getting in a prop plane in that picture of his wife waving to him as he flies from one vacation to another. By the time he got to Johnson, you're in the jet age. You could jet down to or over to a disaster more easily. Now, that wasn't the whole thing, but that's one of the pieces of this. The bigger piece is television. In the 50s and 60s, television learned that hurricanes could make exciting viewing. Before television, it was possible that a hurricane could devastate an entire region, and much of the country might not know about it. In 1938, the Great New England Hurricane killed 700 people. 1,700, well, almost 1,800 people were injured. 63,000 people lost their homes. But as William Manchester writes in The Glory and the Dream, Long Islanders and New Englanders traveling to other parts of the country that fall were startled by the number of well-informed men and women who knew nothing of the hurricane. The country had suffered a greater disaster than the Chicago Fire, the San Francisco earthquake, or any Mississippi flood, but surprisingly few readers read or retained what they read, and so within a week they had forgotten the hurricane, and the story has been one of the forgotten fragments of American history. Now, partly the hurricane of 1938 was overshadowed by news of the Nazis making advances in Czechoslovakia, but even today... If you had that kind of a hurricane, you would have news anchors clinging to palm trees in the wind, regardless of what was happening to Czechoslovakia. The interest in hurricanes on television obviously arrives with the ability to display them. So you had Edward R. Murrow, one of the first to ever fly into the eye of a hurricane, but also obviously the cameras could go. And not only were they up in the hurricane, reporting on the meteorological and scientific advances that allowed... People to predict hurricanes more, but they could go and film the flooding and the and the destruction and people in their destitute conditions. Edward R. Murrow in See It Now said that the movements of even an unexceptionable hurricane were, quote, recorded as completely as those of the president or a movie star. So excited was NBC to capture hurricanes and to beat the competition that they hired their own private weather company to help position the television assets so that they could be in the right place to cover the carnage afterwards. And why is this important? Well, television created an immediate connection with the people who were suffering, created a national story out of it. That spread it across the nation, first of all, and that put pressure on the president. And as presidents also learned to use the medium to speak out to the nation, if the cameras were shooting the hurricane, that might be a place that a president might want to get himself in order to get good coverage And show the folks back home. It's not clear whether television created the action hero presidency or the action hero presidency was created by things like the New Deal and World War II and the fireside chats in which a president was there explaining to the country, being there for the country, leading national action. Or whether it was there and then television gave it a huge boost. With respect to disasters, though, I believe the answer is that the action hero presidency, where a president calms a nation and acts as a soothing voice in the night, that can be attributed to the New Deal and the Second World War. But then natural disasters came under the cloak of that same power and that same desire to show an energetic chief executive... That can deliver quick results. But that all came later in the television age, that connection to the disasters. And that's essentially the deal with the office of the presidency. Elements of all of its huge stature can be traced usually all the way back to its origins. So it's not a question of whether the office contained elements of what it now holds, but it's whether it's of the size and scope uh, that it now holds. Obviously, the point of the office of the presidency is the executive can move faster than the congressional branch. But the expectations of the modern age, where planes move faster and the television creates a sense of immediacy uh, and the general pace of life quickens, that's called out and attracted presidents seeking to elevate their stature in a host of different ways, but notably with respect to disasters. It's like each president has been like a Marvel Comics movie director. The first one has Spider-Man rescue a few cabs that have got a bulky wheel. Then the next director ups the ante and has Spider-Man rescue a subway car that's gone off the tracks. And then, of course, Spider-Man has to rescue planes. And then finally, he's saving podcast hosts from extended metaphors. Now, if Eisenhower had been a federalist seeking to shrink the government, Johnson was expanding government into all kinds of new ways in the American life as a part of the Great Society. So he helped create new federal engagement on the issue of poverty, health, minority rights, environmental protection, and education. His visit to New Orleans that opens up our narrative was not his first presidential disaster trip, but what he had done in the previous ones during his presidency had been more limited. When he visited the Ohio River flooding in 1964, he did it in part to get his name in the papers in an election year. He was also working local politicians. As Davies points out, he was bringing together the governors of Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, and connecting them with the Army Corps of Engineers, the Bureau of Public Roads, the Small Business Administration. This is in keeping with that original conception of the president's relationship to disasters, which is that the locals were the ones in charge. And in this case, with the Ohio floods of 1964, he was acting as a facilitator, acting on the periphery of the national disaster, certainly not making a big noise about it, not promising anything specifically to the constituents, but using the office to facilitate. His goal was retail as much as wholesale. In 1964, he had a response to the Alaska earthquake. He worked behind the scenes, but he didn't use it, again, for public relations purposes. Alaska was a little bit of a special case, too. The state had only joined the union in 1959. So while the disaster was really well covered, Johnson didn't go to Alaska to visit, In fact, like Eisenhower, he was on vacation for part of it. He spent the Easter weekend at his ranch. Nobody criticized him for it, even though the Alaska earthquake was a big story. So even the man who would redefine this relationship between the presidency and disasters inhabited for portions of his presidency the exact behavior that Eisenhower did in 1955 and that would seem so out of step today. But throughout the Johnson presidency, the disasters continued to present themselves. His great society instinct was born out of his personal feeling about the presidency, you know, that it was there to do good for people. And this was a view of government, but it was also the way the guy behaved. He loved the adulation of the people. The disasters offered an opportunity to press the flesh, as they called it at the time. Liz Carpenter, the press secretary to Lady Bird Johnson, who had known the Johnsons for a long, long time, described President Johnson this way. When I think of Lyndon Johnson, I always seem to see a long arm reaching out to pick up a telephone, to grab a sheaf of papers, to shake hands, to embrace, to comfort, to persuade, sometimes even to shove, but always to include. Yes, always to include. That's quoted in The Glory and the Dream, one of our constant resources. But it was in this context that Johnson reached his long arm out to the debris fields. And when he started to make promises on behalf of the federal government. So you have the great society's instincts to help people from the federal government. Then you have the personal instincts of Johnson reaching that long arm out. And then you have the predictable natural disasters. Johnson toured Indiana and Ohio after some tornadoes had hit there and promised, quote, to do everything conceivably possible under our laws to help the victims. At another stop, he declared that, quote, at an hour like this, and time like this, the federal government must not be something cold and far away, but a warm friend and a warm neighbor. So compare that to Eisenhower. You had Eisenhower emphasizing local control, emphasizing civil responses and, and civil defense teams, emphasizing the Red Cross, not doing what Johnson did with those tornadoes, which is saying, help the people. His tour, Johnson's was, to Ohio and Indiana after those tornadoes was a huge hit with the affected communities, and it planted a seed with Senator Birch Bayh, who would then later be instrumental in growing the federal role in disaster aid in the 1970s, getting legislation passed which further locked in the federal response to disasters. Congressman John Berdamas of Indiana put a notice in the congressional record from a South Bend paper after President Johnson's visit to Indiana and Ohio in the wake of those tornadoes. And this notice that he put in the paper examines this idea of why presidents should visit a disaster area. And at first, the columnist sounds skeptical about what good, quote, a presidential visit does anybody after a tornado has flattened his home or business or has killed and maimed his family. But then the columnist comes around to the two possible ways in which a presidential visit does matter. A demonstration of personal presidential concern, he writes, cannot help but prod the federal agencies to cut through red tape and bypass normal channels. Second, it helps personalize, quote, the sprawling bureaucracy that is the federal government in the 1960s. The presidential visit briefly transforms the institution into a symbol, a person to be seen and spoken to, providing proof that, quote, somebody cares and that. Helps elevate people's, quote, distressed spirits. And here's how those positive press articles in response to Johnson's visit to Indiana and Ohio to cover those tornadoes turned into congressional action. Johnson goes because of his view of government and his personal proclivities and desires to help people. He lands, he gets good press, then that press is inserted in the congressional record by the congressman. Who represents the district Johnson visited on May 11th of 1965, he puts it in the congressional register. Why? Because he's introducing legislation to help the victims themselves, not the institutions, not the buildings, not the bricks and the mortar and the I-beams, but the people. And here's the way in which Berdamas, the congressman from that district in Indiana, makes his pitch on the House floor. Mr. Speaker. The areas ravaged by the Palm Sunday tornadoes joined an unusually large group of other unfortunate areas, which during the past year also have been the victims of major disasters. And now people in my district join with other unfortunate ones in attempting to rebuild not only their homes, businesses and communities, but also their lives. For many lost not only all of their personal possessions, the products of years of labor, but in many cases at least one member of their family. In their endeavor to rebuild, however many individuals from the Midwest to the Pacific Coast have found or are finding, That in spite of the general and extensive disaster relief provided by the federal government, little or no assistance is available to them. It has become increasingly apparent in the past year that our present laws are not adequate to deal swiftly and justly with the problems arising from major disasters. If nothing else, these disasters and the resulting inability of the federal government to handle them should stir us to correct these deficiencies." So there's the key line, little or no assistance is available to them. So there's the distinction that was being asked for, federal help not simply to build stuff, but to help people get back on their feet. So how did this request get tied to presidential action? Well, into the introduction of the bill, the congressman included all of those positive notices in the local papers for the president's visit. And those pieces heralding Johnson show off his most glorious behavior in the light of this tragedy, a sign that all the politicians listening on the floor who also wanted that kind of glory refracted on them, would like to see associated with their own names. So the least they could do was vote for this legislation that would help people and deliver through legislation the kind of behavior that Johnson had engaged in. But to the extent that politicians herald what a president does, it tends to get repeated. But also these pieces were promising, were basically here you had a congressman seeking to do right by his constituents, in part because he was quoting the president. We plan to do all we can to help, President Johnson had said when he visited the tornado-ravaged areas. This case, he said it in South Bend. And a newspaper man asked, does this mean we'll get federal aid? And the president said, it does. What made Betsy different, though, in September of 65, was that Johnson would marry that promise with actual action, not from Congress, but with the man himself. Betsy was a second big hurricane in 1965. It appeared to be heading up the Atlantic, but then zoomed south towards Florida and then reached the Gulf of Mexico and kind of sat there for a minute before making a disastrous landfall in Louisiana. The Ninth Ward, which you'll remember from the Katrina, was particularly hard hit, was where, it's the, poorest, where the poorest of Louisiana's residents live. They'd been told they were going to be safe, so when the storm actually crashed in on them, as was true with Hurricane uh, Katrina, the shocked residents raced up to their roofs for safety from the water. 80 died in that process. Senator Russell Long, the son of Huey Long of Louisiana, called the President and begged for help.
1: Mr. President, besides the Great Lakes, the biggest lake in front of is Lake Pontchartrain. It is now drained dry. That Hurricane Betsy picked the lake up and put it inside your Jefferson parish in the 3rd District. Now, if I do say it, our people are just like, like my home. The whole damn home's been destroyed, but that's all right. My wife and kids are still alive. It's okay. But Mr. President, we really had pretty
0: headed down there, and we need your help. Oh, all right, you got it. Long predicted that if the president came to visit, he would so impress Louisianans who had mostly voted against Johnson the previous year because of his strong support for civil rights, he said to the president, if you go there right now, Mr. President, they couldn't beat you if Eisenhower ran. Johnson did not at first want to go to visit Louisiana. He told Long that he was too busy. He had complained to his uh, secretary earlier that every little boy in America was calling him on the phone, (laughs) which gives you some sense of how pressed upon life he felt. Calling him on the phone, not because of the hurricane, but just because he felt like he was just beset with requests. But when Johnson then called his director of emergency planning, Buford Ellington, former governor of Tennessee, Johnson offered up the real reason that he wanted to go make the visit to the Ninth Ward, or, well, to Louisiana, anyway. It wasn't good PR. It wasn't the people who were suffering. It was politics. He had asked Long to do a lot over the last year as a senator, and he owed Long something in return. So here's LBJ talking to his emergency planning director, Buford Ellington, about why he wants to go help Long.
1: I actually don't think this warrants a trip, but you the boats. Well, I here's my problem, damn it. When I ask a man to do something, I want him to do it. Right. <laughs> and I've been asking Russell Long all year. Yeah. He's had to do a lot of things he didn't want to do at all. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an emotional. <laughs> That's what I think. I've talked to him. Today? I've, yeah, I've been in touch with his office all day. Well, he, I told him a while ago if I couldn't go, I'd send Governor Ellington. He said I don't want anybody to go but you, and by God I want you to go. <laughs> Hale Boggs is the same way, and he wants me to go. And Ed Willis is in Game Bay, and they kind of, they got trouble with their school plans and they uh, segregationists, and yeah. they feel like nobody cares about them, and they mm-hmm. voted against us and. They feel like it, are kind of on the outside, and uh, I i feel by them like a 17-year-old girl. I want them yeah. to know they're loved. And yeah. I have pet Lucy sometimes when I'm, there. I'm sure I don't want like to, because I don't want to run away from home. Well, you let us know what I you're doing. How does it feel to be an old, long, whiskered grandpa? It feels pretty good, Mr. President. You well, won't be sorry. You're gonna What you're going to do is probably cut down your work schedule. <laughs> I could cut it down and still be doing plenty. How are you going to teach her to talk over the phone? <laughs> I don't
0: know. Johnson then, in the phone conversation, goes on to talk about his aide, Jack Valenti's daughter, teaching her to talk on the telephone, and how... Uh, He's also asking um, Buford Ellington about some for some recommendations about getting shirts made with a pocket in which he can hold his glasses. It's uh, worth going back to on the Miller Center uh, website uh, just for your own amusement. But this is how action gets taken in politics that helps people favors get traded and good things get done. So Johnson wanted to make the trip because he wanted to scratch Senator Long's back and make him feel loved. And that was because Johnson had received that love previously from Senator Long. Johnson was able to fight through the bad weather and arrived at the airport and made a statement, which we don't have the statement because the weather was so bad and you can't hear it. But he said, I'm here because I wanted to see with my own eyes what the unhappy alliance of wind and water have done to this land and its people. The president then made his way to the St. Cloud Avenue Bridge, and here's how Johnson's diary, kept by an aide, recorded the scene. In New Orleans, right after Hurricane Betsy. The motorcade stopped again on a bridge, and this time did depart from the limousine, meaning the president did depart. The press scurried around the president and members of his party as they looked over both sides of the bridge below at the water that had engulfed the neighborhoods. People were walking along the bridge where they had disembarked from the boats that had brought them to dry land. Many of the people were carrying the barest of their possessions, and many of them had been sitting on top of their houses, waiting for rescue squads to retrieve the families and carry them to dry land and to food and water. The president stopped and talked with some of them, among them a gentleman by the name of William Marshall, 74-year-old Negro man. The president asked him how he was, and they chatted for a while, the man leaving the president saying, God bless you, Mr. President, God ever bless you. The motorcade soon departed and returned into the city, en route stopping at Washington High School on St. Claude's Avenue. The president again left his car and walked into the building that was being used as a refugee center. Most of the people inside and outside of the building were Negro. At first, they did not believe that it was actually the president. He walked up steps leading into the school, and the only light was that of a few flashlights lighting the way for him. The president would stop and talk with a few of them in the school. It was a mass of human suffering. They were crowded into the school with their families gathered around them. Calls of water, 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 were resounded over and over again in terribly emotional wails from voices of all ages. The president left the building and in front of it called for Honorable Buford Ellington to come to him and asked him to send water to them immediately. You'll remember Ellington was the one he was on the phone with, his disaster director. He also suggested to the mayor, Victor Shiro, that the soft drink companies in New Orleans make available the bottled soft drinks, since the water had to be boiled and no electricity was available. Contamination could set in. The mayor agreed to check into the possibilities of this. The people all about were bedraggled and homeless, thirsty and hungry. It was the most pitiful sight of human and material destruction. And while Johnson was walking uh, through, a woman rushed up to him to tell him that both of her sons had drowned. Then a little bit later in the diary, uh, this is reported from the flight back. The president told the press that he, quote, intended to cut all red tape and place New Orleans on top priority in getting aid to them. The president came back to Washington, and this is how Lady Bird Johnson, his wife, described him when when he arrived back at the White House. He came along about 1 a.m., looking exhausted, but talking of nothing but the hurricane damage. He'd been checking the departments at even that hour of the night about whether food was being flown in and if enough medicine and cots were available. He told me of the man who rushed up to him and cried, I've lost my baby. Lyndon's face contorted just as the man's had, as though he were about to cry. He said it was horrible. The next day, Johnson directed the Air Force to fly telephone engineers down to New Orleans to restore communications. He also started working the phones. Here he is on the phone with Robert Phillips of the Louisiana Office of Emergency Planning. Listen to the metaphor about the family that the president uses.
1: Uh, Mr. Phillips, this is Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Senator Long uh, is here in the office, and we have reviewed uh, uh, the uh, problems that... uh A result from this terrible uh, disaster that we've suffered there, and uh, we have gone from agency to agency, uh, beginning with the Corps of Engineers, the Veterans Administration, the Food and Drug Administration, the Agriculture Department, Small Business Administration, uh, all the services, Army, Navy, uh, and Air Force, uh, the National Command Center, the Department of Agriculture, Interior, Maritime. Housing and Home Finance, and Bureau of Yards and Docks and Navy, Federal Communications, Federal Aviation, Bureau of Public Roads, Treasury, Commerce, and Interstate Commerce Commission. Now, in times of distress, uh, it's necessary that uh, all the members of the family get together and lay aside uh, any uh, uh, individual problems they have or any personal grievances and uh, try to take care of the sick mother and uh, uh, we've got a sick mother on our hands and as I said the other night when I was there we've got to cut out all the red tape Uh, we've got to work around the clock we've got to ignore uh, hours Uh, we've got to bear in mind that we exist for only one purpose and that's to uh, the greatest good for the greatest number and uh, the the, uh, uh, people who've lost their homes uh, people who've lost their uh, furniture, the people who've lost some of their uh, crops and their even their families are uh, not going to be very interested in any individual differences between uh, federal or state or local agencies. So I hope that all the government people can put their shoulder to the wheel without regard to hours, without regard to red tape, uh, bring to these people... Uh, the kind of assistance they need in this emergency which is worthy of a great government and a great country and I want to thank all the local officials and the city and county and state and parish officials and I want to assure you that up here if you have any problems let me know about them, we'll get them straightened out and down there I don't want any problems to uh, that the the, uh, uh, Betsy didn't uh, create to exist. I don't know orders. Well, uh, uh, Harrison Long won't say a word to you and we'll do the job here and we expect you all to do it there. Yes,
0: Johnson also after the hurricane had other things to worry about. He had to manage a miscue that could have resulted in the equivalent of a chemical weapon explosion. Here's a couple of paragraphs from uh, Washington Post piece at the time talking about the president here, he also disclosed that he, ordered, that he ordered an all-out search late Saturday evening for a barge loaded with 600 tons of liquid chlorine, missing between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Were the chlorine to escape from the barge tanks and be exposed to air, it would be converted into a highly toxic gas capable of killing up to 40,000 persons in a concentrated urban area. That chemical explosion never happened, obviously. In the end, Johnson helped get legislation passed to give $1,800 in loan forgiveness from the Small Business Administration for those that had been affected, and he secured funding from the Army Corps of Engineers for a plan to protect New Orleans. The Betsy Bill, which is to say the legislation produced after Hurricane Betsy, secured the idea that the federal government was there not just to rebuild the buildings and the roads, but that it had a duty to care for its suffering citizens. A job that had been done by the Red Cross. So, in sum, we have the president working on the legislation, we have him going down to New Orleans, we have him getting on the phone and calling for the cutting of red tape. And we have in the papers then that same feedback mechanism that we had seen in the local papers in Indiana and Ohio from the visit to the tornadoes, we now see it in the Washington Post. Headline reads, LBJ sees toll in hundreds, assumes charge of day and night relief operations. There it is, action hero president, assuming charge of day and night relief operations. It's a president at the helm. Gareth Davies, again, in in his various papers that he's written about this, makes a careful point to say we shouldn't go too far on this moment with Johnson's. His motives had elements of what we recognize today, but were also limited in their scope. So he was using disaster relief in some of these trips for specific needs that he had. But, you know, for example, in Betsy, he was going down there to help out Russell Long, So in other words, he wasn't going down there to get his name in the papers or to get the television cameras to show him being empathetic or because there was a norm that suggested that he go visit. There was no such norm as we demonstrated both with Eisenhower and with Johnson, who was, you know, went to his ranch for the weekend while Alaska was recovering from the earthquakes. So there was no norm, but he helped create the beginnings of it. Like much of the presidency, once a president changes its shape, in this case, going to the hurricane, taking personal action to deliver personal relief, not just infrastructure relief, the presidency rarely snaps back to the original form. And this is particularly true when a president takes on an action or enlarges the office in a way that benefits him politically, or I should note, takes on a role in the office that if he doesn't perform it would hurt him politically. So now modern presidents are expected to take charge when there's a big disaster, and they have to be visibly directing the response before it happens. Then they have to rush down there and both manage the whatever's going on, but also provide empathetic uh, and emotional leadership. Remember when President Obama sat with the 22 families after the massacre at the Newtown School. In that case, he was both the receptor of the grief of those 22, but also providing and, and That public role that the that the columnist wrote about when when Johnson went to Indiana during the the tornado, that public grief role where he's also sending a signal that your federal government cares about you and the body of the president is contained the entire nation in a way for the people in that hard hit community. And this is, of course, why we now have a situation where presidents are compelled to go and must make this kind of gruesome calculation about how many people are killed and how big the the damage is. And then, of course, sometimes going to spend uh, to visit when there are relatively small disasters, but a president needs to improve their image. And so they go and do the disaster routine for purely political purposes. And so this is how we have come to the consoler-in-chief, the empathizer-in-chief, the responder-in-chief that is now a common part of the presidency and is now the standard against which we measure the incumbent as he deals with the series of hurricanes that hit the United States in 2017 and provides his own unique form of response to those national moments. (laughs) That's it for Whistle Stop this week. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. There's that funny algorithm they use. Uh, so it helps us um, uh, get our little place in the sun so people can hear these stories and help use history to reflect upon the current moment. The further you go back, Churchill said, the more you can see ahead. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, would climb to the top of the tallest roof and, and endure the largest deluge to get us the great newspaper clippings and uh, academic articles which are the basis for this and basically all the work we do. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. The next installment of the Whistle Stop podcast on the presidency will be in two weeks. Until then, thanks for being out there.